Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmaker. And today I have the honor of filling in for Bill Nygut. So we're going to touch on several stories today. Uh, Yesterday evening, we saw the potential beginnings of Georgia's controversial new voting law in action. Fulton County tapped former Atlanta City Council President Kathy Willard as their new elections chair. And she is the supporter of Stacey Abrams' organization Fair Fight Action. Now, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has threatened Republicans will likely enact part of the new voting law that allows them to remove county elections board members because of this. Meanwhile, Georgia Democrats pledged last night to continue to fight efforts to limit reproductive rights in this state. And Georgia's abortion law, HB 481, will be heard in the 11th Circuit Court in just over a week. If it is struck down yet again, Georgia can appeal to the Supreme Court challenging the precedent of Roe versus Wade. And so we certainly have those stories and a whole lot more to discuss today on Political Rewind. We're joined today by Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, Mayor of East Point. How are you today? Good morning, Don. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. On this rainy day, we're, we're just going to keep it rolling. So thanks okay. for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And then Leo Smith, political strategy consultant and CEO of Engaged Futures Group. How are you today? I'm doing great, Donna. It's great to be with you. I'm glad you're here, too. And this is the regular guest here on um, Political Rewind, the partner for Bill Nygut on Thursdays, Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Kevin. Donna, it's great to be here. And uh, I guess, I mean, we've had quite an upgrade this morning with you joining us over <laughs> Bill. I hope he's not listening when I, and hearing me say that. But I, when I signed on this morning, I was like, wow, I get to be on with Donna today. This is going to be a good show. Oh, that's nice. But there is no one who can replace Bill. He's the best at this. And so I enjoy listening to him myself. So thank you so much for being here. So let's get right into what happened with Kathy Woolard with the Fulton County Commission tapping her as the chair of the county elections board, which has always been in battle. Um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says she's just too partisan and that she's such a big proponent of Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action organization. And he says she's been on the payroll. She has kind of said that she's just been a lobbyist for them. But uh, at any rate, Kevin, what do you think of this? Well, you know, Kathy, I think, is a respected person in in, uh, Metro Atlanta, certainly uh, Fulton County, and has has served in office, uh, ran for mayor. And so um, I think what we're seeing here, and I'll be interested to know what our our other panelists think, is there's nothing that sets Republicans off quite like Stacey Abrams. I mean, just the mention of her name seems to invite just all kind of fireworks and invective and all kinds of things. And then uh, the only thing that's, uh, you know, the, and, and what comes along with that is anyone even loosely associated with her in any way uh, is now getting the same reaction. So, um, I mean, this elections board, uh, the appointments in this day and age, we're going to, no matter who is appointed, I think there'd be a controversy about, wouldn't you think so, Leo? 
You know, absolutely, Kevin and Donna. I think, um, you know, where we're trying to rebuild trust in elections, that's what we're really trying to do, to then nominate someone who has been very partisan, has run for political office. And we know, I mean, we, you know, I, I have always with me, you know, this whole state rules, election board rules document, the book, right, which has changed a lot since Senate Bill 202. But the fact is, is that You've now thrown a person into the mix who was paid by an activist organization that sometimes engaged in good information and sometimes arguably disinformation, too, alongside, you know, other bad actors who were talking about state fraud. There was also some some bad acting on the other side, too, when it came to information about the elections. So to have been in that kind of a role and now be in a place where you're heading in Fulton County the county that's being not only attacked by Republicans in Georgia, but being attacked by Republicans in Arizona, <laughs> and from the, the national level uh, attention being paid on Fulton, this really puts you into a bad place for Fulton. And, and I, feel, I feel for Fulton. Yeah. So let, let's talk about this a little bit more, though. These we we know, you know, so they, to say it's partisan, we know that. All of these election boards are partisan. Certainly the state election boards is partisan right now. It's Republican. So is is it fair to really to say that, you know, her her being a, a part of the um, a fair fight action as a lobbyist is um, is is too partisan on all of this? And Dina, what do you think? So I think if there was a Republican appointed um, to build trust and it would be somebody who supported Senate Bill 202, that there would be concerns as well, because that is extremely partisan. The unfortunate reality is, is that in this country, we have politicized a basic American right, which is the right to vote. And unfortunately, instead of ensuring that regardless of who people vote for, that they have the ability to access the ballot, the ability to know how to vote, the ability to cast their vote and for their vote to be counted, we made it totally political. So it's interesting every time something happens that, you know, the Republicans or Democrats, like if it's some, it's always going to be this partisan argument. The reality of it is it's the people. We should be people focused and really encouraging people to vote. And when we have historic turnouts like we had in the elections last year and in um, the runoff in January, we should be doing more of that. And we can't negate the fact that Senate Bill 202 restricts a lot of the advancements that happen during those elections. And so it's unfortunate, again, that we have politicized the American right and the sacred right to vote. Yeah, Kevin? Uh, Mayor, I have a question for you, though. As a practical matter, wouldn't it be awful hard to find someone to serve on an election board who wasn't involved in politics and therefore affiliated with one side or the other? I mean, I don't, I don't think your average person wandering around the street wakes up and says, hey, I think I'll try to be on the elections board. That would be fun, right? Yeah, so I'm not <laughs> suggesting that you, they should be, you're going to find somebody who's not a part of the party. What I'm suggesting is, is that Republican, Democrat, Independent, we all should have the common issue and common, um, common desire to make sure everyone votes. So, yes, it's going to be from a party, but instead of talking about that, put parties aside, put division, the things that divide us aside, and focus on how we get the most people to vote. And it's not by a secretary who's a Republican talking about taking over an elections board because he doesn't like the person that's appointed. That's not it. All right, Leo? Yeah, I mean, you know, 
the mayor, I don't know her, I don't know her partisan affiliation. <laughs> I don't. And, and that's an example uh, uh, where you can find people, Kevin, I disagree. I think there are people who are civically engaged, who have not run for office, probably can't find them in California right now since so many people ran for governor. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people who have, who are engaged civically, who are fairly independent in their voice and who sort of play both sides and, and talk both sides. I mean, Helen Butler, for instance, the, the, the People's Project, I'm sure there are Republicans who might know who she is. She, they, they would say that she might be a partisan person, but I've interacted with her a lot, for example, and she, she, you know, she hits hard on both sides. And uh, I think that's an example. I think these people exist. I think we made a very, very, very um, a fought sort of appointment here. All right, Kevin, I want you to answer that and talk about that a little bit. But it also occurs to me that, you know, the Fulton County Board of Elections, any not just anybody would want even want to be pulled into <laughs> the, that mess at this point. I mean, there's so much that has been gone that has gone wrong with that um, over the years, it, we know. Yeah, I do think that's lost, uh, obviously, with all the controversy and the and the uh, news about this appointment. And another thing that's a little bit lost is, despite what the Secretary of State said, right, he's no longer a member of the state elections board, thanks to his fellow Republicans and their bill. So um, uh, I think his case, uh, if, if you are a believer that the uh, a, st- a county election board ought to be uh, taken over, uh, if it doesn't perform appropriately, I think his case is always better with the all the problems Fulton has had in past elections and that that record means that something ought to be done. I think that's a stronger case if you're going to make one. Uh, the appointment o- over a partisan person, uh, again, is going to just get lost in uh, – I mean, there are some pretty powerful quotes and and you just know there's no – and to the, uh, you know, the, the vitriol that people will speak in a situation like this. And I think that that will just lead to bigger problems as opposed to getting at the issues at hand, which Fulton should run elections well. It's its biggest county in the state. Yeah, the reality is the Fulton County Elections Board right now has two Democrats and two Republicans. So, so Willard would be the deciding vote. So I'm, I'm wondering how you... You know, I mean, somebody was going to be the deciding vote, whether it was Republican or, or Democrat, Leo, in, in, the, in this case. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have looked for a few independents. We've had a growing movement of independents, people um, uh, holding an independent uh, position in politics. I think there are plenty of those people in Fulton who could have been considered. Um, you know, I just, I just think that there's a way amongst that committee. Actually, matter of fact, I interacted with them quite a bit last year during, or in the past couple of years. There's quite a few people on there that I think that could have been a better choices around the Fulton Elections Board. I think this is clearly a salt in the wounds kind of a placement, and it's going to create a battle that we've never seen before when it comes to Fulton Board of Elections. Yeah, well, we know that Willard, you know, as, as uh, Kevin mentioned earlier, very respected, Atlanta City Council. She served as council president, um, and she's also run for mayor of Atlanta. So uh, there, there are a lot of people who have a lot of support for her. So this is one issue we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Um, uh, when, in terms of what this, the state elections board will do when it comes to that new law that we have, under the new election law that l- allows them to the state to step in and and do something, the state elections board. 
But as we mentioned, um, Brad Raffensperger is no longer on that board. But it'll be interesting to see if anybody else speaks out. He's he's the only one I've heard of so far. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of anybody else who's who's talked about this. Of course, the final vote didn't come until last night. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that one. The the other thing that happened last night is. Um, Georgia Democrats pledging to continue their fight against efforts to curtail reproductive rights in the state. And they did that last night. Uh, So the 11th Court of Appeals next week is set to hold a hearing on Georgia's HB 481. Uh, So we're going to this is finally really revving up. We've talked so much about the elections. This is still out there. And certainly what's going on in Texas brings new lights, puts a new spotlight on this. So Our law seeks to prevent abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, basically, the heartbeat, so-called heartbeat bill. Uh, Different, of course, from Texas in many, many ways. But um, the case could then go before the Supreme Court, our case, and for Georgia, and set the president of Roe versus Wade. And so, Leah, I'm going to begin with you on on your thoughts on this continued push here. Uh, How big is this going to be as as we go on this, this issue in terms of uh, what we're going to see uh, with the candidates as an as an issue, abortion rights. Yeah, this is obviously this is a nationalized issue. Of, you know, obviously with Roe versus Wade uh, being uh, something greatly debated now, um, and with the Trump Supreme Court being there, uh, any case that uh, gets thrown up there is probably not going to bode well for for those people who are asking um, for the Supreme Court to. Uh, push back on a state's um, you know, right to decide for itself. And, and I think that's, you know, that's obviously local control is a big issue these days. Um, this being in Judge Beverly Martin's uh, court, I think this is really interesting. I, don't, I, I think it's in her court. It was in the 11th, right? So, um, yeah, I think that's a very, very good judge. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens here. Yeah, uh, Mayor, uh, Mayor Mayor Ingram, I I know that Planned Parenthood apparently had a virtual press conference last night uh, and really focused on what's going on in Texas and the feeling that even though our law here in Georgia is different from Texas, except for that the the part about the so-called heartbeat um, part of the bill, uh, so. Do you see that this is going to continue to be a big, big issue? This Texas thing, has it has it really emboldened and energized the um, the Democratic Party? Um, I think the party has always been energizing and keeping up the same energy around protection of women's rights. I mean, it is unfortunate that, again, I said it before, that this is a national political issue that the, a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to determine um, what happens or what she does with her body. Um, is unfortunate that in our country that this has become a political issue that becomes a top election issue. And it's really, you know, an individual right to choose. We don't have these same conversations about men. Um, out of all of the time that we've had these discussions and it keeps rearing its head, it's always trying to restrict a woman's right to make a decision. And that is absolutely, um, you know, unconscionable. And so I, I think, again, what we're seeing is just the way that our country has become so polarized and politicized and the desire to control um, and have control over people's right to choose. And unfortunately, as women, I mean, we, we unfortunately are often the ones that are taking the heaviest and hardest hits. 
you know, the politics will play out, I'm sure, as these decisions are made by courts that are appointed by and have been appointed um, in the Trump era in a very era in a very uh, political partisan way. Um, but I remain hopeful and will, you know, continue to fight and stand with um, all of those who are fighting for the protection of a woman's right to choose. Okay, Leo, I know you want to jump in on this. Yeah, just quickly. I mean, we are at a time where uh, our cultural compass is shifting based on the political changes that are happening in America, um, largely um, being moved by demographic shifts in America. And so all these things are open game for question. There's going to be a lot of other things that we ask questions about. And here we are with our president now talking about a mandate on a vaccination, right, um, on people's right to choose. So it's really interesting that Republicans are, are on that anti-vaxxer side, more on that, not all of them. I'm a Republican. I'm vaccinated. I want people to get vaccinated. Um, but, you know, the idea that Republicans like, I want a choice on my body and what I put in it. Women are like, I want a choice on what I do with my body. It's interesting how this argument is being played out right now. Yeah, Kevin, that I, I think that is the fascinating part about all of this is how we're um, the whole vaccination thing and the um, abortion rights issue seems to converge in a way within some in some minds. Right. And I think it, it does represent the uh, the politics of it. I mean, in the polarizing of the country and, and the attempt to frame issues uh, in, in certain ways. I mean, the anti-vax movement uh as such, unrelated to COVID, has been around for a long time. It's just that COVID gave it a bunch of momentum and it shifted its message to this idea of personal freedom, personal choice, as opposed to anti-science. And that's really what, what what's, what's happening. Uh, the abortion thing, one of the things I think that we shouldn't overlook, besides the fact that Donald Trump came to office and promised to appoint anti-abortion judges to the Supreme Court when he, if he got the opportunities, and he did that. The other is that um, Republican legislatures, if you remember, were almost in a uh, race to see how many could pass really strict abortion laws. And it, mm -hmm. the, they were pretty open about very similar language, models legislation that was shared around the country, and that they wanted to perhaps be the state that got to the Supreme Court that, that created the situation to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so that's really what's playing out now. I mean, uh, let's keep in mind that what the Supreme Court did was just let the Texas abortion law stand, right, until further uh, review or, you know, further arguments were made and all of that. So I think that it's going to be um, this abortion thing is going to keep going unless the court says, okay, we are going to make, we are going to issue a big, big decision. And, you know, back to Leo's point about personal choice, all of the Supreme Court nominees, when they are uh, going through their confirmation hearings, talk a lot about honoring precedent. And then when they, we get to the court, it, we honor precedent, except when we don't. I mean, you know, it's sort of a, an odd thing. And again, I think another example of what's polarizing the country. Yeah. Dina? I don't think that a woman's right to choose whether or not she will give birth is analogous to a vaccine that prevents life or death, right? And so my, I counted my daughter's vaccinations the other day. I took her for our annual checkup on September the 1st. She has 37 since she's born, 37 to be able to attend school. So these are the ones that are required. 
for her to be able to attend school. And I bet there are Democrat and Republican, um, you know, people who are Democratic and Republican who have kids who have probably around the same number of vaccinations. And so when we talk about the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are dying and the death toll continues daily because of a global pandemic, because of the COVID-19 virus, that is um, really being detrimental to the health. And we've seen the stories of so many people who are in the hospital, you know, just before taking their last breath saying, get the shot. It should take the vaccine. I wish I had done it. It is not analogous to abortion rights. This is about life or death. And the fact that your the decisions of others is impacting people around them and causing people to lose their lives. And so, you know, I, I think it's really important to understand like vaccinations aren't new as, as we said before. I mean, we get them. I've had them. I don't know how many I've had, but I've gone to public school as well, right? This is about life or death and the need to back up. And the unfortunate reality is, is because it has been so politicized since March 20th by the federal and state level, we are still a year and a half in. The Delta variant is picked up. People are continuing to lose their lives, and we're still playing politics about something that is life or death. It's just like the requirement to wear seatbelts. That was to save lives, and people buckle up or get a speed ticket. This yeah. is even more serious, right? And so I, I don't think they're the same, and I do think it is critically important that people back up because Americans, people are dying daily. Okay. Leo, I don't know if you want to have a final comment on that. If not, No, the vaccination piece I think is important. We know how important it is. You know, um, if we just saw a whole election that was partially based in, in a recall in, in, in California based on this issue. But people are dying, as uh, the mayor said, and this is really urgent that we attend to this. You know, I think that we also just need to make sure that we pay more attention to science. And, and so is vaccination the only way? to make certain and being sure that people are vaccinated. Is that the only way to make certain that someone has built up antibodies? Um, we know that that's not the only way. And we're not having enough reason scientific discussion. And I think the president needs to do more reason scientific discussion. Yes, our governor does too. And, uh, you know, the, Secretary Toomey does here in Georgia, Department of Health. We all need to make sure that we're using a science approach to build trust again. Okay. I want to talk about that race out in California and a lot more, but we're going to get to our first break. So stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry. In for Bill Nygut, and with me are a wonderful group of panelists who are really, really digging into some of the issues that we're uh, talking about today. And I want us to focus a little bit more, I think, on the the issues of dealing with um, COVID, that, and Leo brought it up. But first, I want to say it's Leo Smith. He's with us. He's a political strategist, strategy consultant, and CEO of Engage Futures Group. Um, Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Mayor Dina Holiday-Ingram, mayor of East Point, Georgia. So, Leo, you did bring it up, uh, what happened out in California. There is the feeling that Newsom won because this uh, the and I should say Governor Newsom, who was in a California recall, 
um, election out there in California on Tuesday. Gavin Newsom, his ability to recall, to fight back the recall, some believe it, it was a referendum on COVID. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I, I think it was a referendum um, that affirmed that California is a Democrat state, two to one. I mean, it's a blue state. That Republicans saw this as an opportunity makes sense because it's the only way that we, you know, could get a chance. Republicans could get a chance to win that state again since Arnold Schwarzenegger won it back in 2006. So, uh, yeah, it's a referendum on that. I'm not so sure it's a referendum on COVID. Well, like Kevin, this came about, though. The recall effort came about because people were upset uh, at the way Gavin Newsom was dealing with the COVID crisis. At the time, the the signatures started coming up. But in the end, things changed, certainly, in terms of COVID by the time we had this election on Tuesday. Right. And I, I think you're right, Don. I mean, it, it, California it makes it somewhat easy to to uh, have a recall election. Let, let's start there. And I have some bad news for all of us on this show. I mean, Larry Elder, the radio guy who was running against him, of course, did not win. So those of us on the show who have political ambitions better realize you got to be on TV, apparently, to get elected, not on radio. So let, let, let's, let's remember that. But um, I also think, you know, I also think that uh, in the in the end, it's just kind of crazy, right? I mean, we're going to potentially remove our governor and elect a new person. And then in, in, in a year, we're going to have yet another election. I mean, it's just sort of a, a, a crazy uh, process. And at some level, I think is symbolic uh, uh, of our of how crazy and impractical <clears throat> partisan and uh, uh, myopic uh, things have gotten sometimes in our political landscape. The amount, I mean, I saw an estimate somewhere, and you know, Leo or, or the mayor may have a better feel for what this could have cost. And it was like a half a billion dollars was spent in this campaign to change right. nothing, right? right? I mean, let's think about that for a second. That's how crazy things have gotten. Yeah, I think I think the thing about it is it, all of the money that was spent, you, as you pointed out, just a year down the road, they're going to have to go back to the polls again in terms of the governor's race. And then the, the fact that, um, it, you know, the, not much was accomplished in that, except that the Democrats may feel a little bit more confident about um, their place in in um, in California, and it, they made this a national kind of a national race, kind of a, na- a national referendum on not just COVID, but certainly on Donald Trump. Deanna, Dina. Yeah, and I think it speaks to um, how important it is to not underestimate the electorate, right? And so, yes. Um, uh, over a half a billion dollars spent on something that changed nothing, as he said. But the the electorate realized how important it was and how critical it is to be a part of the process all the time, to stand up and speak against things that are happening. And I think that is what, you know, all of this partisanship and all of this, um, you know, really just radicalizing everything is turning into, that we have a more engaged more informed and more active electorate and people are holding elected officials and people accountable for, you know, how are you benefiting me? Are you people focused? What is, you know, is this, how is this going to help our community move forward? 
And so if there's any good thing that comes out of it, I think it is that continuing to see um, our electorate, the people, um, government of the people, people for the people, by the people, seeing the people realize their power and continue to show up despite like the tricks and the, and the things that are happening to show up and say, enough is enough. We're moving in a different direction where people focus and people have the power. Yeah, Kevin, a lot of people did show up. Uh, they thought that there would be apathy, but uh, especially on the Democratic side, they, they came on to the polls um, and, and they voted. Yeah, and that's kind of, I wanted to ask Leo this, Donna, since you mentioned that. I mean, let's try to bring it home to Georgia. And I know that's, it's very speculative, but but it looks like in California, one one explanation for what happened is that the Trump factor, the the all of this divisiveness, the recall itself, California doesn't have a, uh, a, a, a new voting law or anything like that, but it, it actually inspired Democrats to come out, apparently. Do you think that could happen in Georgia as a result? Of, in other words, there are people who argue the voting law will backfire. Uh, and there are people, of course, who want to argue that it's going to restrict voting. But what does it really mean for Georgia? Is there anything to be learned from California, in your view, Leo? Well, I think that's a good question, and I think it's more of the same. It's going to be more partisan framing. We're going to – I mean, the, the – what, what California, the takeaway for me is that we're in it, people, citizens of America, we're in it for really nasty politics. That's all about framing. Because part of this whole question about Newsom was actually about policy issues. It was about immigration at one time, then it morphed into COVID, then it morphed into it was always his housing situation. The fact that you got Californians um, for the first time, according to our census, we had, uh, you know, they had a, a net loss. And uh, population in California, people don't like living there like they used to be. And it's an elitist state where, like San Francisco, only the rich can afford to live, you know. And so it, it's a, he's got issues. And he, was, he, he said he was going to address those issues when he ran for office, but then he didn't. The difference is in Georgia is that the, the governor of Georgia has some things that he can claim to, you know, that are great successes. Now, the framing related to SB 202 means that it's going to be Republicans, voter suppression, you know, Democrats, good for, you know, whatever, I mean, whatever the argument is going to be, um, right, social justice, you know, the rights of uh, immigrants, et cetera, is going to be the continued framing that are bad, these good, where pro-democracy ideas, commonwealth ideas on making democracy better for all people, that's what gets lost in the mix. And that's what the Californians didn't really address. That's why they have recalls every year for 60 years, um, because they're no, it, it's so partisan in California that nobody's really talking about policy issues. In Georgia, we're risking the same thing if we don't get back to being about the people. Yeah, Leo, though, I do wonder if there is something to be said about, um, you know, Larry Elder. There were a lot of people on the ballot, but Larry Elder <laughs> being <laughs> coming out ahead and he is a, a, you know, a solid Trump supporter. And yet we didn't have the, the Trump support come out in California the way expected. I mean, is is this a, a somewhat of a referendum on uh, some of the people who are feeling like that? Well, I think it's been referred to as like a third of the country um, of Republicans are um, are really interested, are really diehard Trump supporters, and well, that maybe they didn't, they didn't, uh, they're not getting the backing from the more 
uh, the rest of the party. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. I, I think you're right. I think uh, the, the Democrat candidate, the incumbent, he had two presidents, you know, at least I know of, both President Obama and President Biden take time out of what he's dealing with with the, the globe um, came out to, to, to California to help, whereas Trump didn't really go out and help uh, Elder, and, uh, and I'm not sure that it would have helped. Uh, Elder was such a candidate as one who was formerly the minority voter engagement strategist for the party, for the uh, Georgia GOP. Um, I wouldn't have chosen Elder um, in, in, as a celebrity shot jock type of person. He had good policy thoughts. I agree on some of his policy thoughts, but he's an entertainer primarily. And that whole idea that you can be an entertainer like Trump, when Trump was an entertainer, he had people who liked his TV shows. Um, on both sides of the partisan aisle. But, you know, Elder is not that level. And people keep trying to, to, to copy Trump. And Trump is not the thing in all states. Yeah. And so, so Dina, I wanted to ask you, so there, there are some people who've looked at Elder as, you know, uh, somebody who's a strong Trump supporter and looked at Herschel Walker here in Georgia and said, OK, so you've got two black men and there, there's a push within some elements of the Republican Party to think that that uh, having somebody black in in those positions <laughs> running for those offices might make a, offices may make a difference, right? Um, so I, I was curious about your thoughts on that in terms of what we're going to see in the Senate race with Herschel Walker going up against uh, Senator Warnock. <laughs> so I have to start laughing because um, again, I, I, I just think people underestimate the electorate and underestimate black people, like. It is not just because somebody's black that people vote for them, right? Like, what is what what has Herschel Walker done, and what is his position on policy? And you know, I I think it is an insult. I mean, just especially I mean, to me as a black person in America, to think just because somebody's black that we're going to, people are going to vote for them, and that somehow makes him competitive to a Senator Raphael Warnock, someone who, you know, has served the community consistently as a pastor, as a leader, has been an advocate for, I mean, like, but the people will decide. I, I think it's an insult. And I think it, you know, really speaks to um, how lowly um, certain parties think of people of color. Um, and, you know, just really this gamesmanship. I think when we talk about, um, you know, where we are and, you know, whether or not Senate Bill 202 um, is partisan or not partisan, you know, if we could shift from those types of conversations and just look at the facts, right, whether it is, whether you're talking about Democrat or Republican, the facts are is that that bill, you know, has totally overhauled and changed the absentee ballot. It requires things that were never required. It um, restricts the types of ID that can be allowed. It limits the number of absentee ballot boxes that can be located in a county. They have to be inside, right? It, you know, it basically limits the number of, um, it shows the time frame to request an absentee ballot. Like those are facts. That's not party or anything. That is a fact. And if in the last election, those things, having more absentee ballot drop boxes, allowing all polling locations, early voting polling locations that have the box outside, like if those things, and they did work because there was historic voter turnout, then why? is the law restricting it 
that's not a Republican statement. That's not a Democratic statement. That is a factual statement that those are limitations on things that were put in place that actually got more people to vote. And so until we start having conversations and not talking about party first, the Democrats this or the Republicans this, facts. What happened in the last election that had so many people turn out to vote in historic numbers and let's continue to do that. Not have Senate Bill 202 that restricts that and then puts in all of these partisan type of provisions letting the governor be over things. I mean, like, really, like, let's just stop it. The people expect us to do the right thing. And, you know, serving at the local level, while I have my own individual party, it's a nonpartisan position. I look at issues from a people perspective. How can, what is the right thing to do for people? And in voting, the right thing to do is to help make sure that more people have the ability to vote. They know how to vote. They have the ability to access the ballot and vote and that every vote is counted. I mean, that is not partisan. That was a fact. And we have to start getting to that and stop vilifying people who are advocating to against voter suppression, against those things that restrict people's rights to vote based on facts and action and saying, ah, okay, let's move forward in a way that really accomplishes what we all say we want on both sides of the aisle. I will say that voting was easy in California, that they did mail ballots out. So there, there is that aspect to what you're saying. They, they, they mailed ballots out to people. Before we leave this in terms of Georgia and California, I did want to, Kevin, talk about a, a little bit about something interesting. I thought that um, your, uh, your AJC reporter, Patricia Murphy, who you know I love, uh, had her uh, she had uh, she did something and talked in the jolt this week about the trouble in God's country, um, which is a blog that focuses on health issues in rural Georgia and pointed and actually asked the question, are Republican policies killing their voters? Because in the Republican areas, uh, it pointed they pointed out in this blog as of this past Friday, the 129 counties that sided with Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, and, the, and the presidential election had significantly higher COVID-19 case races and death rates and much lower vaccination rates than in the 30 counties that went for Joe Biden. So um, is, is there something there? Because we also learned in California that um, I guess the New York Times did a map and showed where the, the COVID rates were high and where the, um, the Republicans were. And, you know, we saw what happened in, in that election. I don't know. Any thoughts? Well, I do think, yeah, a couple things. I mean, Charlie Hayslett, who, who, who did that blog, is an occasional guest on this show. I know I've been on with him. So uh, it, it is a very interesting piece. Uh, and, and I think he's careful about not drawing conclusions and just raising questions. But it, it is going to be interesting, depending on the status of the pandemic and, and how it all feels, to see whether Georgia's election will be largely shaped by that. Um, some people, the Democrats may want to try to frame it that way uh, or not, you know. And um, I do think that we saw that in the presidential election. I mean, we, we, we saw that a lot of people felt like Joe Biden could handle the pandemic better. It's in sort of an endless argument, but it is inter interesting that just the pure numbers. Yeah. I think it is interesting, and if you're interested in that article, you can go to that um, the God's Country 
blog, Trouble in God's Country, and you can find it on if you Google it. It's an interesting article, and, and there are the comments afterwards, I, I noticed, were on both sides. So, so we're going to leave that for now, and let's take another break, our final break. And so stick around. We'll be back with more of Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, filling in for Bill Nygut today. And with me are Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, mayor of East Point, Georgia, and Leo Smith, a political strategy consultant and CEO of Engage Futures Group. And we've been having a great conversation I want to turn now to the DA, the Fulton County DA's office. It's, we're focusing a lot on Fulton County today, I realize, but uh, it is it is a large county and there is a lot going on. Uh, so Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, uh, she went to the Fulton County commissioners yesterday and she actually talked about it being one of the toughest things that she's done since she's been in office and she asked for more money. Um, she asked for money and she got it, $708,000 to hire 55 five additional staff members, 15 lawyers, 15 senior in investigators, 25 support staff members. And uh, the cost is about $5 million over the next year to get what she wants. But the, the issue is that um, things are pretty backed up in terms of the courts in Fulton County, Kevin. I mean, it's it is a problem we saw coming out of the pandemic. It was a problem before the pandemic. It has it's certainly become worse since then. Yeah, let's agree that uh, District Attorney Willis knows how to make a case, right? I mean, she uh, went public here and, uh, you know, led with the idea, we're going to free a bunch of people who were accused of murder. And mm -hmm. then she talked about the money she needed, both short-term and long-term. So I think that uh, she certainly got people's attention, attention uh, in terms of uh, crime in Atlanta, these genuine fears. And she has been talking about this case uh, backlog really uh, since she campaigned. I mean, uh, that was a major criticism of uh, former district attorney Paul Howard, that things just moved too closely, or I'm sorry, too slowly, that uh, nothing uh, could happen. And then when the courts closed and remained closed because of the pandemic, but um, I think the that would get any citizen's attention. And it, there are some remarkable numbers that she cited about the literally 224 murder suspects who have not been indicted and 51 of those have to be charged by the end of the month or they'll be granted bond and be able to go free. I mean, if that's not going to get the public's attention and the Fulton County Commission's attention, I don't know what would. Yeah. And, you know, that in the law that requires the Georgia courts grant bond if the suspect hasn't been indicted within 90 days. So she's had to go and get this these extensions to make sure she doesn't have to let, let a lot of people out. Um, I, I got to ask you, as a, as a mayor, uh, you know, in Fulton County, <laughs> Dina, um, what concerns you the most about what what's happening with the Fulton County court system? You know, what concerns me the most is. Um, ensuring that there are appropriate consequences for the types of actions that are committed and that people in my community feel safe and feel like the system prioritizes keeping them safe. Um, safety is literally a feeling. It is a perception that you have. It's a feeling that you have. And when that feeling of safety 
is, you know, disrupted or challenged or, you know, breached in any way, it, it is, it, it's not a good feeling. And so, you know, kudos to um, B.A. Willis for, for making the case. I mean, she's clearly a very good um, trial attorney. <laughs> she went in and, and made the case and used her skills, to, but for people, right? Because this is really about safety. This is really about ensuring you have to have appropriate consequences for actions, right? You can't just say this is okay and then there's anarchy and people do whatever they want to do. But in order to make that happen, there are resources that are needed. She was able to advocate for those, secure the bag, and, you know, help to continue to help people feel safe because that is important. If we don't feel safe, nothing else matters. If we could do all of these other great things and have all these things to do, if people don't feel safe, nothing else matters. Yeah. Leo, you know, crime's been a major issue for everyone. Republicans, Democrats, the Republicans certainly have made it a campaign issue in the governor's race. And then we've seen it in the mayor's race with the Democrats and all. So um, so this this is a big issue. And um, so I guess I'm not surprised that the um, commissioners went ahead with <laughs> with granting her the money. Right. I mean, I, you know, from Mayor Bottoms uh, sort of approving that training facility for police officers um, to uh, former Mayor Kasim Reed making crime and law and order uh, a Giuliani-type campaign he's running here. Um, this says something about a genuine Georgia difference. In California, it might have boded well for someone to, say, to sort of be soft on crime, um, early on releases, uh, big on cash bail and things like that. But from Savannah to urban Atlanta, Americans in Georgia, black, white, brown, it doesn't matter. We don't want crime run amok in our state. And you're seeing that across political difference, whether you're in Savannah, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, folks don't like crime run amok. And Georgians are still, you know, center right when it comes to that issue. Yeah. So we certainly have seen it uh, with this Buckhead City movement, all of that, that crime is the major issue. So we're going to see a lot of this. But, yeah, she she really did use this the scare tactics. And with the crime being uh, on the rise in Georgia, it's not a surprise that she was she was able to get through. I do want to before we, we wrap up, talk about something that happened the other day with um, Commissioner. I'm sorry. Yes. Our Commissioner. Commissioner Toomey, the to com, commissioner of the Department of Public Health. And she got very emotional the other day when she spoke at her board meeting about what's going on with the people who work within the department. Um, Kevin, it was it was um, amazing to see how this is something that we, you know, we talk about. We've heard doctors talk about with nurses and staff and all in the hospitals, but not hearing as much about it when it comes to the Department of Public Health. Yeah, it, again, it, it, you know, we've talked a lot about polarization and, and and all of that. And I think early in the pandemic, people were, you know, making a point of 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 honoring and recognizing people who worked in the healthcare field because of the tremendous strain they were under, which remains and in some cases has gotten worse. So it's just kind of uh, kind of shocking. Uh, and I do think that uh, it's a feature of our society now where there's this sort of an over-the-top ability, thanks to social media and other methods, to uh, criticize people, to attack people. And it has, it has just taken root in a way where, for some reason, people think 
it's appropriate behavior. And um, I, I, it's, it's just kind of sad. I mean, I know that the vitriol in my email inbox, um, it's certainly uh, of much more extreme tone than it was not that long ago. And I'm sure the mayor uh, would probably tell a story like that as well. And Leo, I just think the fact that is this that the politics have come into to this to the point where people who are trying to do some good, who are just doing their jobs too, are are being treated to um, treated so poorly. And so, you know, the fact that there that she says that the CDC found that 53 percent of public health workers were experiencing at least one mental health condition, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. They're exhausted and they, they're just trying to do their jobs. And they're in the politics of all of this is affecting them. Yeah, it's a very sad thing. And these are the people who are caring for us, caring for our children, our grandmothers, our brothers and sisters. They're the people who are picking us up when we're down and low. We must do better across difference. We have to do better and we have to love on those folks. Um, and I mean, from legislator to citizen, all of us need to figure out how to give more love to those people who are caring for us most. Yeah. And we know that social media is a big part of this. Some of them have been um, treated poorly on social media. You know, they have had to leave their testing sites. The, you know, people are jeering them and 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 try and they've had to close testing sites because of it. Um, Dina, it's just it's it's kind of sad that it, politics has gotten into. I, I, I'll say it again, into something that we um, so basic and people are having a hard time keeping their jobs now or wanting to stay in jobs. And these are people we need. It is. And it's all stems from the lack of leadership when this pandemic first hit, right? The, the 45th president and the way that this was handled, we're still seeing the politics at play in a very real life. Or that This is about people's lives. This is about the fact that the more that people aren't getting vaccinated, the people who are in public health and the people who are in health care, they are being exposed daily to these people who are making bad decisions. We have to take politics out of masks and vaccinations. It, it is clear. The science and data is clear. People need to be vaccinated. I said my daughter has 37 vaccinations. She turns 12 on November 22nd. She's going to have 38. And three weeks from three to four weeks from that, she's going to have 39. Because in this time, it's not about how you lead when things are good. It's how do you lead through crisis and you lead by modeling the way. And vaccinations are critically important to save lives. Well, that, it's I, worth a shot. I appreciate I'd like your, your final line there. I want to thank you uh, all for being with us. It's all the time we had. This really went fast. Wonderful conversation. Thank you, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram and Leo Smith and Kevin Riley for being part of the panel today and, and helping me to fill in uh, for Bill here. Uh, thanks to producer uh, Sam Burmistas, who's been amazing. Uh, Sarah Callis, uh, Jesse, Jesse Nicewanger, uh, you, you've done wonderful work. Thanks for always making me feel comfortable. I'm Donna Lowry. Thanks for joining us. As Bill says, stay healthy, get a vaccine, wear your mask, and have a great rest of your day.